What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. As always, I am your host, Aaron Sagers, a journalist, author, researcher of all things weird. I can currently be seen on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus's Paranormal Caught on Camera. Now in its fifth season, new episodes airing on Thursdays and dropping same day on the streaming service. So September 1994, nearly 28 years ago in Harare, Zimbabwe, at the Ariel School, spelled A-R-I-E-L and not A-E-R-I-A-L, which is great great coincidence more than 60 children saw a strange craft apparently land nearby and they witnessed two figures with large black eyes and seemingly impossibly pale skin outside of this craft this experience lasted upwards of 10 to 15 minutes but It stayed with them forever to this day. This is Aerial Phenomena. It's a documentary based on the true story of Zimbabwe's UFO sighting. And it has been hailed by the likes of actor Dan Aykroyd, as well as noted UFO researcher Leslie King, amongst many others. Currently, it is available for purchase at aerialphenomenon.com. You can check it out. And Aerial Phenomena is directed by Randall Nickerson, who is my guest today. So without further ado, let me bring Randall in. Hey, Randall. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I really I want to congratulate you on this documentary because there's a lot of different ways that one can approach UFO sightings and this kind of phenomena. And I admire that you took a very humanistic approach by this is really getting inside the heads of the kids that witnessed this some 28 years ago and the, the kids that are now adults and it packs an emotional punch as a result. So well done on that. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's funny. There Go were, on. We had, we, you know, our first version was when I was starting to build it in the beginning. Um, you know, we had many versions. We did the traditional UFO film, and then we're like, well, everybody does that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then the, the further we went along, it was, um, yeah, telling the human story about it. And, you know, not even thinking about the aliens that, yeah, they're in the movie, but focusing not on them so much as 
what people experienced and how did it affect their emotional lives, their family lives. Anyway, to make a long hey, I, story short. <laughs> well, what drew you to this story initially? Uh, it was in 1995. I was with uh, at a meeting that Dr. Mack was doing, and I saw the videos of the kids that he had interviewed, and uh, that really <clears throat> that led me to search for the school. And then once I found, because I heard for so long that it was not there anymore, I um, I found the school. It took months. And then once I knew it was there, I was like, I was on a plane right away. So I needed to, there was a lot of questions I needed to have answered. So when, so what year did you finally find the school and were you able to go visit? Uh, I got the tapes in September, 2007. And then I found the school in February of 2008. Okay. <laughs> just, I've been on this a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I, I got the sense watching mm -hmm. it that this was a project that you have been working on for a long time. So it's not enough to say that you were tuned into this because of Dr. Mack. It's uh, what I, I think there has to be something else there, something very personal about why this stuck with you to pursue it for so long. Oh, oh yes. I mean, it's, it's something I just don't want to talk too much about. Um, but yeah, I had something happen to me when I was a, a child and I, um, I can't say too much more than that. Cause I want to keep it on Ariel's story, you know, but okay. that, that event never left my life and it wasn't the only one. So, I, you know, I wasn't into UFO, whatever. I wasn't into that growing up. I was building airplanes, you know, aircraft carriers, ships, you name it. Mm -hmm. got, and I still have all those models. I'm a model builder. And, you know, in my, in my, whatever, um, my own personal life. And uh, anyway, I just want to keep it on the, the children's story because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell, help them tell their story. Okay. You know, so anyway, I appreciate the, you know, people do things for reasons, you know, great things are made because people have a passion. And uh, personally, my passion was to get this word out that we have and we have a problem. Flat out. We have a problem. Oh, yes. You know what I'm saying? Expand on that. Whatever those things are. Um, we need to deal with them to see what their actual end game is, you know, really. And now I'm not, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm talking crazy. And I know I'm not because I've talked to Air Force pilots. I've talked to people all over the world. So, but we, I think we need to address this in a more serious way so we can get some answers. Well, I, I would not say that you're talking crazy. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not just dipping a toe into the, the weird pool I'm all in, but the, when you say, uh, just from your perspective, when you say dealing with, do you, especially uh, without kind of telling too much of the entire aerial story here, because we want people to watch the documentary, but is your takeaway that these are, when you say deal with, as in we need to reckon with the fact that maybe we're not alone in this this universe this galaxy or deal with as in you walked away perceiving 
these extraterrestrials as a threat? No, I don't see them as a threat at all. I mean, there's a potential of that. Um, and that's why we need to look carefully because if, if they, you know, if, if it is a threat that we don't understand because it's going over such a long period of time that uh, we may want to know what their end game is. I don't believe, I personally, I, you know, I don't think, I don't even even argue and say things are good or bad. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I just keep it like, we don't know. They're obviously doing science things, really. And, um, you know, people don't pay attention until you, you tell them there's a lion, you know, circling the village. <laughs> and people come in and tell and everybody, you know, uh, gets moves that lion away. Um, I'm just trying to connect it to our way we treat wildlife, how, you know, how they look at us. This mm-hmm. is another form of wildlife, likely. I mean, I'm positive myself about that, and we need to address it to understand them. You know, we need to understand what we're dealing with, and then we can make decisions. But I don't see it as a threat. I, I just don't at all with the technology that has been observed. Okay. So specific to this aerial story. Yep. Let's get back there. Yeah. Walk <laughs> me through some of the challenges of putting together this documentary. What were since it, especially since it did take a long time to assemble this, you've been working on it for, uh, you know, what you said it's, it's been since 2008 is when you would really say you started working on it. Yeah. No, I I was transferring all of uh, John Max beta SPs. I rented a deck. I had to transfer them all to digital at the highest possible rate. That's what I was doing from 2007 to the beginning of 2008. And then, so it'll, it's 14 and a half years right now. It'll be 15 in September. And so what were some of the greatest challenges in putting this documentary together? <laughs> uh, everything. Everything was really, really challenging. Because um, I went from short form film, 16 minute films, all of a sudden into a full feature. And, and that's a big difference as a filmmaker. Uh, you know, I look at a 16 minute film and I'd love to do one because they're so easy to do. I mean, then those are hard, but to do a full feature documentary, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. and to release it commercially, then you got lawyer, you got to get lawyers, you got to get, I mean, it, it became a, a, uh, a very expensive thing to do personally. Yeah. Yeah. Worthwhile. I mean, I, I, I never questioned why I was doing it or, you know, or, or, you know, the, the, the children that had stepped forward to tell their story. I, I, I just never, you know, um, stopped because it was too important. I felt to get this out to the world. Well, as far as, you know, as far as the children go, there were reportedly 60 students that had witnessed some, some version of this some of this and if i recall but based on the the ones listed in your credits 14 were willing to go on record with interviews and it it seems like there were more that you spoke to that wished to remain anonymous can you talk about that a little bit about the the choices of those that wanted to go on record versus those that wanted to remain anonymous and why that might be and additionally were there witnesses that 
you tried to track down and couldn't, or maybe they flat out refused to discuss. You don't have to name names, but if you can walk us through that journey a little bit. Well, uh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that, Aaron. I, I, I respect that. Um, you know, I've met with 43 of them. Wow. Personally. And um, I, I've had all kinds of experiences. The ones that have gone on camera, I owe them. I mean, I just salute their bravery. I really do. I mean, what they've done is, is amazing and risky for them. And there are many others who I met. I actually did a, a pre-interview with one of the witnesses. She's great. I hope she comes forward. Uh, and I said, you know, let's do the interview tomorrow proper. But she allowed me to record our pre-meeting. And, uh, and then she decided, her, her dad told her, since she was an attorney, you know, studying to be a lawyer, um, her dad said, you shouldn't do this because of your reputation. And, and we never did that interview. Okay. And then there was another interview where I, is it, am I taking up too, too much time? I don't know what to. No, no, please uh, go on. Yeah. Just tell me if I run on too far. No, you, you, I, I'm enthralled. Okay. So, um, and then this other witnesses witness who I knew was very close to the, he had, he had something very profound happen to him because his two friends told me, so I tracked him down. We had a scheduled meeting and then his wife called me and while I'm driving, I'm, I'm looking for their house. So I'm in their neighborhood. And she said, he doesn't want to talk to you anymore. He thinks what happened at aerial school is the devil and that you shouldn't be doing this work. You're working with the, de I, I couldn't believe my ears, mm. but you know, but, but then I thought about it later. I'm like, well, if, if, if he thinks that, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was his wife who thought that, but uh, he, if that's the answer, then something amazingly powerful happened there. If that was the, you know, if they're thinking it was the devil, then, oh my God. Right. Anyway, I've just been through so much and I, I respect them all. I hope they come, come forward. You know, the ones that really saw this thing and had these experiences, I hope more of them come forward because it's a, it, it was a very unusual event, no doubt. 43, 43 of the 60 that, that we seem to know of. Do you, if you were to summarize, would you say, okay, so there was the gentleman who believed it was a religious, a negative religious experience, and then there was the person that wished to, an attorney that wished to not go on record. But if you were to summarize the overall takeaway as they look back, do they view this as a ultimately positive experience? I know there was a lot of terror and fear when they were kids, but now do most of them view this as, as something quite poignant for their life? Um, it varies from one spectrum to the other, really completely. Um, it really depended a lot on how the, the children's parents dealt with it. That's my take. Um, and whether they were supported, because there were so many kids who, whose families would never believe them, really. I mean, that's, that's hard. And um, so, yeah, it varies. There's some that are terrified of it. Still. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
you would not believe the security I've seen at some house I could tell you about. <laughs> I mean, anyway, but fear, fear. And then you have others that are, you know, more like, bring it on. I'd love to meet him again. You know, it's just like it it it, it spans the, the spectrum fully. Now, one of the one of the witnesses is Emily Trim, and she seems she's one of the anchors of this story that brings us through the narrative. And initially, she calls this something she doesn't want to revisit and does not want to go back to the school, which she does do. But she calls it a reminder of pain. Talk to me a little bit about Emily and what it required for her to want to open up about this to you, be on film about it, but also for you as a filmmaker, when you had Emily, was this sort of immediately a lightning bolt of like, okay, here's the thing that's going to tell this this tale, the someone that we can really uh, we can really kind of follow through. Um, when I first, yeah, the first email, she was like angry that I was making this movie. And then I met her in 2012, 2013 in person to interview her. And I, the, the emotional, what came across in one of those clips is in the movie. What came across was somebody very emotionally available and had real feelings about what had happened. And there's more than those people. But when I met her, I think she trusted me and I also trusted her. And she revealed an awful lot and, um, you know, just shared openly. And um, I immediately I'm like, this is this is the person. This is the person because I'd already interviewed, you know, most everybody at that point. And then um, yeah, she was, uh, I commend her for her bravery. Yeah. And she now is, will speak about this experience at convention at UFO, the International UFO Congress. And she also makes art about it. She does. Her art's brilliant. I've seen it. I've painted with her. <laughs> we have we did a painting together, which is really interesting. We took a twenty four by thirty six uh, canvas, and uh, she took half. I took half. It was mm-hmm. she was done in like twenty minutes. I was there for an hour. <laughs> She's good. She's really good. As you're as you're speaking with these students as adults, was part of your filmmaking strategy to see if their stories were consistent with what they oh, were yeah. saying on camera as kids? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and they were, were they? They were. And here's the thing I did was I didn't show them any of the interviews. I mean, some of the interviews were available on YouTube of, of John Max interviews, but I got six other interviews of kids that were, were never, um, it, it never went to air. So it, it was impossible for these witnesses to see their own and what they said when they were younger. So when I interviewed the adults uh, that didn't weren't in Max footage, they repeated the exact same story for the first time in 20 something years. 
uh, without them knowing what it, they even said as a child. To me, that 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 spoke volumes. Nothing was added. Nothing was taken away. All these kids, same way. They didn't add anything to the story or make it more dramatic. No, it's all it's the same story. And it's I don't know. They're not looking for ego. They're not looking for attention. You know, that doesn't mm-hmm. it's not there. Says Where, that speaks volumes to me. You you have this very impactful theme of when they're talking about or when uh, John Mack is interviewing the kids and who is a Harvard psychiatrist who who went to interview these children and then came to be associated with his work of talking to uh, experiencers and abductees. There's these moments where these kids are being, he's drilling in on what what did you feel when you saw these creatures with large eyes and pale skin. And, and let's face it, they sound a lot like what we deem alien greys and the they talk about yeah terror they talk about uh this feeling of it it wanted us or or that it was warning us about humanity's impact on this planet so when you're revisiting this and these are very powerful archival footage with interviews with these kids but when you're going back and you're revisiting this, were there moments where you're kind of facing potential uh, PTSD, traumatic flashbacks as you're speaking with them? It happened all the time. It was really difficult to, um, in the first five years of the film, it was really tough. Yeah. I, did, I mean, I was like doing this project and then I was like, I'm facing everything I have to face every day on that screen. That was really hard. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Well, my crew knows that. My crew knows that. Did that you was consider- one. That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> you, got, you got that good question. <laughs> did you consider stopping at any point? Stop. Uh, like oh, I, wanted the plug on this? I wanted to quit all the time. I did. You know, I just, but the perp, the bigger purpose was driving me, but I had to suffer a lot to go through that. So I had, I got therapy, you know, mm-hmm. had, had to. Let's talk a little bit more about, um, there, there's these other, we have Emily, yep. who is sort of our main narrative voice for the students, even though you do speak with the other students. And then we also have, as I mentioned, John Mack. And we have Tim Leach, a, a journalist, a, a war zone journalist who got pulled into this story. As far as John Mack goes, so he passed away in 2004, I believe. And you have interviews with him. Now, to, be, to clarify, are these interviews you conducted or are these archival interviews with Mack? These are archi- archival interviews from 1994. Okay. And you personally, you said you had met him in 95. What kind, did you have a relationship established with him or you you saw him talk, the story stuck with you? I did. You did? Yes. And did he know, well, you had not really 
fully begun this journey of making this film until a little bit later, was he aware of your intentions to do so? Um, I approached John Mack uh, the very year he died hmm. to do an interview on, uh, I'm sorry, a documentary on his life. Um, yeah, it was too late. Yeah. Do you feel a responsibility? Is it a burden to tell Mac's story and also vindicate him somewhat because there were, there are some fellow academics from Harvard that thought this is a ridiculous pursuit, even though he did ultimately, he, he was able to remain at Harvard despite a, a, um, a, a, a disciplinary hearing that was being done about him. Do you, did you feel a responsibility or was it a burden to tell his story? No, it was a responsibility. When, when, when Harvard went after Dr. Mack, I've never said this before, but I was brought into the Harvard boardroom at, with, with many other uh, people. Um, but we all were brought in individually in, into this humongous oak office room. And they drilled us for um, psychiatrists, drilled us and tried to get, you know, t they were looking to, for any reason to go after John. And they wanted me to say, you know, cause I'm like, no, he was fine. He whatever, you know, never, I never saw him do anything wrong, you know? And that was a horrible experience because I'm I was from you know from a town of eight hundred people and I'm going to the boardroom at Harvard, you know, at uh, what twenty five years old? Uh, no, twenty seven years old. Are you kidding? And and it was very intimidating. But whatever. I don't want to make you uncomfortable or spend too much time on this topic. I want to talk about the film. But <laughs> this is, but I, I feel like this is relevant to the film. And I, I know I, I have just, to ask based on what you're saying it, we can make the assumption that you were one of Max. I was one of the patients. first hundreds. Yes. There was a hundred, the initial hundred. Right? Okay. Okay. So this really makes a connection to why you might personally be invested in making this aerial phenomena documentary. And true, true. But I, but as an artist, I mean, I, this is what this is what I was doing in my life. And you know, when I saw that story, which happened to be personally important to me, and regardless, the story is amazing. What happened actually it doesn't matter who's making it. Um, but then my my responsible because of my connection there, I had to really be objective. And because um, I know this would have come up. What is your what is your response to people that might say and and let me say, I think you handle this very well in the movie through the interviews and the archival interviews as well. But what is your response to people that now will watch this and say these were kids? These were kids. They were grade two. They were grade seven. They were impressionable. Maybe some were having a laugh. Maybe some were believing what the older kids were saying. And you get a group of kids together uh, and you feed them some info and they buy into this sort of 
not to be bad or devious, but they buy into a good yarn and then commit to it. What do you say? Um, I would say immediate, like their stories are all unique. It's not like somebody made up a story and it passed around their story and what they saw from where they were. Cause I did the map of where, you know, these ch children were on the playing field and the playing field is enormous. There's, there's a field, you know, up to the left where it's surrounded by trees. It's a huge football field. And there were kids up there. They didn't see what the kids down there saw. There were people hundreds of yards away seeing it. There were people really close up where all the kids gathered. Those people had a pretty, that whatever happened there, that's where the majority of, of the incident occurred. Yeah. You discuss that the kids reported seeing two figures, and yet they also talked, based on the interviews, sometimes it seems like, it's almost like sometimes it seems like both the object on the ground, the craft, if you will, sort of phased in and out, and then maybe even, and then also based through on some of the pictures that they drew, it seemed like the figures themselves almost phased in and out. So we have the stationary figure, and then we have this figure that walks back and forth, both of them clad and very uh, close-fitting, tight-fitting black cloth, the gray skin, the big eyes. Do you think... You weren't there, but do you think we're dealing with two figures or was it one figure that was moving about somehow? No, there were multiple. More than two? Oh, yes. The, well, this is according to one of the first witnesses. It's not in the film, but it's appeared in other ways from other witnesses that there were seen out the window. But this is before with, uh, recess. And I'm, the only reason I'm speaking about it is I've got two other sources. Uh, that there was two in black, which is what the kids encountered, and there were was one in red and one in white. But there was multiple. So, I mean, it doesn't matter whatever the kids said they saw, because what, what they saw when they saw those creatures, they weren't on the, on the playground at that time. So it was seen out the window. So I don't know. Maybe they're part of it. I really don't know. But the but the original story is is two. It's just it's just one of those you know you go down these roads and you hear it from one person, or you hear it in the archival, and then you hear it again. You you, you, you know I, it's not in the movie because uh, it was only seen by three people, and it was out the window before the main event. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do we have any teachers that have admitted to seeing something? Any adults? I can't speak about that because of their confidentiality, but yes, too. And did you you make a a choice to not speak to the parents of these kids? And 
we get kind of this overwhelming theme that the parents and the grown-ups weren't really believing these kids. Pretty much the majority, yeah. Did did you speak to any parents? Um, yes. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, five or six parents. Yeah, different. I mean, families. Because I that that interested me. Uh, what their take was. Um, because I was looking for the person that didn't believe this happened. To be honest with you, and I found him at the uh, aerial school. And um, but anyway, um, but it just didn't make the cut. You know, it's, it's, it's there was so much more I could have put it in put in here. Um, but we were, I mean, our cut, our major cut was two and a half hours. Wow. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But, you know, everybody's t- in the industry is like hour and a half, hour and a half. You got to do an hour and a half. You I mean, I would go. like to see the longer cut. <laughs> the longer cuts coming. It is. Yeah. Coming. Yeah. Cause, but it's good because people will have a reason to, to sit through two and a half hours and hear the adults. I mean, hear the parents. And hear the man that protested during the film. I interviewed him, and he had. Cho- I won't even get. I, uh, it's a spoiler alert. Um, okay, I'll stop talking. Oh wait, wait, no, I'm. <laughs> no, I go on. So, so if somebody was protesting the making of the film. Oh no! Somebody in the in the film, um, you know, raised his hands when he said he didn't believe the kids. I tracked that guy down. Right in the round table with uh, with Mac in the in the classroom or the right. the teacher's lounge or whatever you did right. track him down. I has did. he be- has he become a believer in the year since? Well, I don't want it. That's the spoiler alert. Oh, like it's okay. Very, we'll have to bring you back. I can tell you that. Say again. It's very interesting. I can tell you that. Yeah, very. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I interviewed everybody I could, like family, you know. Anybody. I interviewed kids that missed school that day. And and I asked them, did you believe your friends when you went back to the school? And they're like, yes, of course. They were telling the truth, man. You know, that I mean, that's how far I went to to even interview people that weren't there that day. So I, I, I did a good job. There was a lot of uh, clues to a lot of different things that I just didn't have the resources to chase. Um, and, uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a fascinating story for me still. And it, it will be for a long time because I, I've got some questions that have not been answered. Such you know, as. <laughs> um, yeah, they're very detailed, uh, specifics. Um, I can't talk too much about that because if people know that what they are, they're going to do it, you know, and I want to do it um, because I've put so much time already. And um, anyway, it's we'll see. Usually what happens is I'll get an email all of a sudden and uh, bingo. Everything, you know, consistently fits together. Yeah. So anyway, we'll we'll talk. We'll talk about that. You're good. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the, you also, you do speak to Tim Leach and this is, this is a man that was a, he was a, re, a reporter in Zimbabwe. He had covered battle zones 
And he said, I forget the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of that, you know, war didn't scare him or uh, he could handle war zones, but not this UFO thing. You were able to talk with him before he passed away in 2011, and he is a compelling character. So what do you think was driving him and continue to drive him to tell this story even uh, up until his unfortunate death? Um, you know, Tim was shot himself. You know, he had, he had a bullet in him. Um, yeah, he, his, what he did for work in Africa was, wow, it scarred, scarred him. I've seen that with a lot of war reporters and anyway, um, but, um, he had kept everything from that story, everything, notes, you name it, tapes, audio tapes. He had kept everything and it was really important to him. Um, very, and he, um, I really, he was such a funny man. You know, he played guitar, he wrote songs about Ariel. That's how big of a deal it was. Yeah. And I actually like his music. It's really, you can hear his soul in it, so to speak. Um, I've been listening to it quite a bit lately because the films come out because I, I really wish he was here to, to see it. What would you say to John Mack and Tim Leach if you had the opportunity to speak with them now and with the movie being released now? What would you say to these guys? I'd say um, I picked up the ball where you left off, and that's someone will do that with me someday, you know? And um, you honor, for me personally, it's like when somebody dies that I love, um, I, um, whatever their project they were working on, like cars or planes or whatever, I, I finish it. My grandfather's piano, I rebuilt it. Like that's kind of what you do for me. And, um, and I, I'm honoring John for his sacrifice, to be honest with you, and uh, Tim for his, because he paid the price, you know? So I, you know, I really care about those men. I wish they were here. And I, and I, you know, on a, another level, I also know they're here, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like my brother passed away recently and uh, he, um, after he died, that, that man came to visit me. And I kind of went through a transition of like, oh my God, that's real. You know, this, people call it spiritual, whatever, and souls and, and um, yeah, that's, they don't, people die, but they, there's another part that does not die. That I'm sure of. And I'm, you know, whatever. Sorry, we're going deep. Uh. No, I like it. And uh, and I also apologize if there's suddenly very loud sounds behind me because I'm traveling. And apparently this is the day of landscaping at this hotel. So <laughs> the I apologize for that. But no what do you think that uh, John Mack or Tim Leach would say after... You know, witnessing last week's UAP congressional open hearing. Thank God. That's what they would say. Thank God. It's been a long time. We do. We do have an audience question, and I'm going to bring this up. 
Were there any goosebumps moments that you realized the reality of what the kids told them, told you, or adults as they are now? I would say, yeah, the, I mean, you already believed them, but as they're telling you these stories, what were the moments that really gave you chills, gave you goosebumps, stuck with you? Well, I didn't actually really believe them in the beginning. That's, I just want to correct that. Okay. Um, But those goosebump moments were as I was looking for flaws was hearing their stories again from them as adults with their eyes looking right into mine. There was no bullshit, you know, there was no BS. They were telling a story from their heart, something that really happened to them. That was really clear to me. And I always got goosebumps because it was like, wow, this is for real. So that happened many, many times because I I was always surprised with any new information or experiences that they went through personally, you know, and and their journey through life too. How hard is it? You know, was it hard for you? Some, Some people just forgot about it and made great careers, you know, they didn't, they, they never forget about it, but they put it behind them. You know, there are, there are those witnesses too, who have families, they're successful. Um, and that's a fascinating thing about this story is you get those people that are wealthy and doing well. And then you have the witnesses that, that lived in the village, completely different experience for them. And I think they're better off to be honest with you. Um, you know, because they don't live with the same kind of uh, ridicule and, (laughs) you know, that whole thing. They don't, it's part of their culture. Well, yeah, actually about that, about it being part of the culture, is the area of Harare and and Ariel School, is it now have they embraced this legacy or is it something that locally they don't really want to talk about or, I mean, has this really become ingrained in uh, their cultural DNA of the area? Well, just in Africa, it is in the cultural DNA that that happened there. As far as the press, they're not very happy about that. Uh, I spoke to the the headmistress um, and, um, you know they they've got a school to run. They have a school to run. They they don't they're not looking for attention from this. You know, I mean, yeah, I just have to say that because it worries me that they've I did this to them. <laughs> you know that they're getting this kind of attention, and um, I don't feel good about that. You know what I mean? I, and I I see the how overwhelmed and how much they work over there and the importance of that school and the kids that are taught there. Um, I just, I don't know. I just hope people give them respect. Yeah. How many times have you actually been to the school? Um, I did three trips. I lived there for like, not at the school, but I lived in Africa for a year and three months and uh, drove around in a car. Because of this project? Oh yeah, that's why I was there, and um, oh yeah, that's a whole story in itself. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> try that. Get in a car alone in Africa and go driving around and meeting people, and uh, wow. Well, that's, 
with 40 you grand were- in trunk <laughs> of equipment. <laughs> yeah. Boy, was I a target. Uh, anyway, uh, sorry, I missed the question. No, I actually, I mean, that's a, that's a, a great piece of information. I, I now want like the companion book as well as the extended version <laughs> of the, but no, does it, has it defined them? Uh, well, I said, how many times have you been there? And then also culturally has it come to define them, but how did, how did you gain trust because of the natural suspicion of perhaps interviewers and press and bringing it, you know, they have a school to run. How did you gain their trust and their access to be able to film and tell this story? I had a lot of conversations with the school and people at the school. Um, yeah, it, it was over a long period of time. They, I think they saw how, how dedicated and how many years I'd already spent, you know, uh, not, not at that time, but you know, they allowed me to come twice. And then I went a third time to just do B roll. Um, so, uh, yeah, it took a long time to build that trust, you know, that was, and I'm glad, and thank God they did. They were amazing people. Everybody at that school, uh, the teachers, everybody they're they're incredible, like good examples of human beings, you know? We know that you have this longer cut of the movie as well, that at some point we'll, We'll hopefully see, but you should still go to aerialphenomenon.com and check out the theatrical release. The that said, if is there enough material here that makes you want to you said you have additional questions, but that aside, would you do you have an interest in going back and interviewing some of these witnesses again, especially because some of these interviews may have taken place a while ago? Do you have an interest in going back and speaking with them again and and sort of seeing where they are now in 2022 and how their lives have been impacted and how what they think about a perhaps changing perception of this kind of phenomenon in the world? Sure. I'm, you know, I, I am excited uh for those very witnesses you, we were talking about before that wouldn't go on camera. I'm hoping this film will encourage them to contact me um, because though there's some very, very interesting details from some of these people that uh, is worth going back for that, you know? Um, and I hope they come forward and tell, tell their, and not, not be afraid to tell their story because their story adds a lot of detail to what happened. Details that did not, that, that because they weren't willing to go on record things that are outside what we know outside what we know. Was there any physical contact? Not that I'm aware of. Did any of these students even if you you can't say who they are, did any go on to be contacted additionally throughout the years or after this event? They, they weren't interviewed. Weren't interviewed. Correct. But they are out there? Correct. So ongoing experiencers, abductees after this moment, after this event? 
the aerial well, phenomenon. No, I'm talking about aerial, what happened at aerial, this contact event. Um, yeah. That there were a large number of, of um, children that were not interviewed. But that's all I can say. Right. <laughs> but okay. there, I just encourage that they, they, they contact me and I'd love to tell their story. Well, sir, I mean, I, I definitely want to hear more of it. I think that this is a well done documentary and just a, a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating story. And I, I'm kind of keen to documentaries that speak to, you know, kids as their kids and then track them throughout their life. Anyhow, regardless of, of, any kind of other phenomena. So the fact that you did this was really quite interesting. I, ultimately, do you think that this was extraterrestrial, what they encountered, or was it perhaps something that's, I don't know, interdimensional, ultra terrestrial, those kinds of things? Yeah, I don't even think in those terms it's extraterrestrial, period. Okay. Uh, so, but I, you know, it's their story. I, if I miss something, which I don't think I have, uh, uh, I believe that's true. You know, I, I, I did my best. Um, and it's up to them actually to tell, tell you guys their story. Mm -hmm. Um, they've already told me, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And so, finally, my, my question for you, this is actually an audience question is how has this experience changed you emotionally, physically, spiritually, this long journey and also speaking to people that have been through something quite impactful and who were vulnerable with you and telling those stories. How has this entire journey changed you emotionally, physically, spiritually? Well, that's a good one. Um, when I was interviewing one of the witnesses, um, she started crying. And I was on the other side of the camera, crying my eyes out, trying to get the tears out of the eye cup. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it affected me emotionally probably the most. Um, it's, you know, going, having to go to Africa and survive in Africa for that long, that changed me into a man. Um, because to, just to be straight with you, there were people there that will, <laughs> it happened, try to kill you. Um, and that was a, like a transition in my, if I, I was, there was a moment, I'll never forget it. It's like I either, cause when I went to my hotel, um, or, or not hotel compound in her, in, uh, Johannesburg and which is one of the most dangerous cities in the world, um, you know, the place I was staying had a 12 foot wall with a guy with a fully automatic machine gun in front of in front of it. And I got in there and started getting a warning about the people of where not to go. And and I had to make the decision. I either go home or I buck up. And really, I wanted to go home. I was scared. And uh, so that was a transitional moment as well. Spiritually, I mean, I've the good part is I have been going to therapy, you know, therapy groups, good ones, by the way. There's a lot of terrible, <laughs> little, a lot of terrible people in that field. But, um, you know, 
that's helped me personally to keep my self together, you know, and heal. Um, it takes a long time. I remember I interviewed Credo Mutua in Africa. He was the Zulu keeper of knowledge. And um, we had a long conversation about that on camera. And I asked him, you know, how, how long does it take to, take to heal from this? And he said, decades, decades. And he meant it. And now I understand that because <laughs> I've been alive for a few decades. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm, I'm appreciative of your time today and glad that you told this story. And I, I Thank look you. forward to more of this story and, and your story at some point. But in the meanwhile, Aerial Phenomenon, spelled A-R-I-E-L, it's available for purchase at aerialphenomenon.com. So go check out the documentary. I, I guarantee you're going to like this one. And Randall, thank you for your time. Just hang out backstage with me for a moment and I'll sure. be right with you. Thank you so much, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. And guys, thank you for joining. That's uh, a really intense, fascinating interview. I'm I definitely want more. I need to talk to Randall some more. Thank you for joining. Don't forget to subscribe. Download each week, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can watch video interviews such as this one at youtube.com slash denofgeekus. Give me a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and on Patreon at Aaron Sagers. And you can follow this show at Talk Strange Pod on Twitter. And let me know if there's some guests that you want me to bring on here, whether we talk to celebrities, we talk to authors, and we talk to directors like Randall. And it's uh, I'm always looking for suggestions. Until then, until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Mm-hmm.